Hello everybody, Eric Grenier here and welcome to the 14th episode of the RIT Podcast. Let's get right to it with the leadership news this week. Annemie Paul, who was elected Green Leader just last October, uh, announced earlier this week that she would be resigning the Green Party leadership. Um, on the day of the election itself in the morning, uh, the only email that I received uh, from our council, from the president of our council, uh, was an email calling for an emergency meeting uh, to uh, launch a leadership review. And then on uh, Saturday night, only a few days after the election, there was a, an announcement sent to all of the members, including myself, uh, that an, a leadership review had been launched. And when I received those two things, at the time that I received them, I just asked myself whether this is um, something that I wanted to continue, whether I was willing to continue to put up with uh, the attacks I knew would be coming, um, whether to continue to have to fight and struggle uh, just to fulfill my democratically elected role as leader of this party. And I just, I just don't have the, the heart for it. Paul was the first black leader of a federal national party and the second Jewish one after David Lewis of the New Democrats in the 1970s. So uh, it is a, a change for the Green Party and one that I think was coming for quite some time. Uh, clearly, the party was not willing to continue with her in that role. And I mean, we talked a lot about it on the podcast over the last few months, just the steps that the party had taken to really make things so difficult for Annemie Paul uh, that you can't blame her for not wanting to keep up the fight. Now, I, I think that there is some blame to go uh, around for everybody in terms of how the party was treating Enemy Paul, how Enemy Paul uh, reacted to everything that was happening. But when you look at the results for the Green Party over this election campaign, I think you have to see that this was a pretty disastrous campaign for the Green Party. And while you can blame the, you know, some of the issues around how difficult the Green Party made it for the Green Party to be taken seriously, the results speak in a way for themselves. 2.3% of the vote nationally is the worst result that the Greens have had since they first ran a full slate back in 2004. Uh, that was Jim Harris. Over his two elections where he was leader, the Green Party averaged 4.4% of the vote. For Elizabeth May, who first ran the party in 2008 and then won a seat in 2011, uh, was able to get re-elected in 2015 and expand the Greens' uh, caucus to three in 2019, uh, she averaged 5.2% of the vote over those four elections. So that 2.3% for the Greens is quite a, a poor showing. Paul Manley was not able to get re-elected in Nanaimo Ladysmith. The Greens were able to win in Kitchener Center. Mike Morris of the Greens was able to win there, but that was a riding where the Liberal candidate had suspended his campaign. Uh, while it does give an opportunity for the Greens to set some roots in Kitchener Center, it's not exactly a sign of a campaign that was successful. Especially when you look at what happened to the Greens in the rest of the country. They had over 12% support in both British Columbia and Atlantic Canada last time. In this campaign, they got 5% of the vote in BC and 3% in Atlantic Canada. Those bases, those roots that the party had been starting to set in those parts of the country, they seem to just have been pulled up in this campaign. And Annemie Paul herself, she spent most of the election in her riding of Toronto Centre trying to win that seat. She took just 9% of the vote. That was up just a point from where she was in 2019 when she wasn't the leader. And she actually lost votes compared to the by-election performance. If you just look at the raw vote total, in a by-election with very, very low turnout, she still got more votes than she did in the general. Now, again, the, the, that fault is shared, I think, between both the, the leader and the 
party organization itself. But, um, you know, there was no way, even if she wanted to hang on, that she was going to be able to move the party forward against its own will. The question, I think, for the Green Party is what's going to happen next? Uh, Mike Morris has more or less said he's not interested in running for the leadership at this point. Uh, Dimitri Lascaris, who finished second in the leadership race last year, seems to be considering a run. Now, he ran on a platform that was far more to the left of Annemie Paul, so we'd see, we'll see how that would work out if he does end up running and if he wins the Green Party leadership, what that would mean for the party. But the future of the Greens, I think, is really in question at this point, and it really is a question of whether the Greens can continue to be a major party, be a major national party. I think after the 2019 campaign, you couldn't deny that the Greens were a real force. They were getting double digits in parts of the country. They were starting to win seats just outside of Vancouver Island. It was no longer just this one little seat and the neighboring riding next to Elizabeth May. But after this result, uh, there is going to be some real questions about where the party goes from here. Now, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was the mail ballots. I wrote about it earlier this week on the writ.ca. Uh, we had talked about the mail ballots and what impact they could have on this election quite a bit. And in the end, it wasn't that much of an impact uh, as it could have been. And uh, this was in part because the race did not turn out to be all that close in the seat count anyway. Um, but there definitely was the potential for mail ballots to be important when it came to this election. Because the Conservatives on election night, when we were looking at the national vote, the Conservatives had a lead of 1.8 percentage points on election night, so a bigger lead than they had in the 2019 campaign when they won by uh, about 1.2, 1.3 points. Of the votes that were counted after election night, which was mostly mail ballots, those local mail ballots, but not entirely, uh, the Liberals won that vote by 8.6 percentage points. That's a pretty big margin. We saw the same kind of thing happening in the provincial campaigns in Saskatchewan and British Columbia, where the New Democrats in those two elections, they were the only really big center-left party, really outperformed on the mail ballots, while the conservative parties, the BC Liberals in British Columbia and the Saskatchewan party in Saskatchewan, really underperformed in the mail ballots. Had the election been closer, had we instead been talking about a five or 10 seat margin between the Liberals and the Conservatives, I think the mail ballots would have made it difficult for the networks to make a call. But because the Liberals were ahead by nearly 40 seats on election night, uh, it made it easy enough to see where the wind was going on that. The NDP, they also did pretty well in the mail ballots. Uh, so in those ridings where it was NDP, Liberal fights, uh, the mail count didn't really make a difference. People's Party did a lot worse uh, in the mail ballots, perhaps not surprisingly. A lot of the mail ballot vote was primarily, one would think, from people who did not want to go out and vote in person because of a pandemic. Uh, if you were a supporter of the People's Party, that was probably not much of a concern. In the end, the only seat that flipped with the mail ballots was Brome, Mississauga, uh, but it did end up mattering because it means that the Liberals win 34 seats in Quebec and the Bloc Québécois wins 33. The Bloc Québécois hasn't won the most seats in Quebec since the 2008 election. So if Brome Mississauga hadn't flipped, this would have been their first time that they were the biggest party in Quebec. But the Liberals will retain that title, which they've actually held for the last three elections now. Uh, one of the other things to point out was in Spadina, Fort York, this was the seat where Kevin Vuong uh, was dumped by the Liberals just on the last weekend before Election Day uh, over a sexual assault charge that was dropped, but he had not disclosed it. If you look at the, where the vote was on election night, the Liberals were still ahead by three points, uh, Kevin Vuong over Norm de Pasquale. But a lot of that would have been the advance vote uh, that was cast a week before Vuong was dumped by the Liberals. 
In the mail ballot, the Liberals were ahead by 20 points. This is the kind of margin you would expect in a seat like Spadina Fort York, which had been won by a much bigger margin than that um, when it was Adam Vaughn who was the Liberal candidate. So the mail ballots suggest, I think, where people would have been had this whole story not broken. If you imagine that the advance poll would have also been the same, if you run the numbers and I you do a back-of-an-envelope kind of calculation, which I did, you come to the conclusion that the NDP probably won the vote on election day. So Kevin Vuong is going to continue to sit, or he's going to sit, in the House of Commons as an independent. He has that right. Um, but certainly there's some questions about really the legitimacy of his win there in Spadina, Fort York. The last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the accuracy of the polls. I also wrote about this on the site. The polls were very accurate in this campaign, uh, which is, of course, a, a big relief for me because I spend a month talking about the polls, and I don't like it when it turns out I was you know, talking about something that wasn't uh, approaching reality. But the polls did a very good job in this campaign. The miss between the liberals and the conservative margin, kind of measure that you usually have in the United States when you think about how close the polls were, the miss was only one percentage point. In 2019, it was 1.5 percentage points. So you can see that that's two good elections in a row, at least two good elections in a row. And you compare that to the United States, uh, you know, it's been two to four point misses over the last few elections. A good job by the pollsters nationally. Leger was the closest polling firm. They averaged just 0.75 point error per party. That's an incredible result. And they were the closest in British Columbia, in Ontario, in Quebec. So all the places that mattered the most. So a really good job by Leger. Uh, a number of other pollsters did quite well as well. Uh, you look at um, Ipsos, for example, had good regional results. Um, if you look at how things broke down at the regional level, Ipsos was also very close in the big battlegrounds, but also in the, in the areas like Alberta, Atlantic Canada, and the prairies. Smaller samples, harder to poll. If you look at it overall... Polls underestimated both the Liberals and the Conservatives, again, they did the same thing last time, and they overestimated the New Democrats, which they did last time as well. One of the things, though, was the People's Party. We spent a lot of time during this campaign trying to figure out where the People's Party was, and the aggregate had them at around 7%. The IVR polls had them at around 9 or 10%, and the result was 5 So... If you remember on an earlier episode, we were talking to David Coletto about where uh, where the support actually probably was for the PPC. You know, at that time, he had thought that between the online and the IVR polls, maybe it would be somewhere in between. But in the end, the online polls were actually much closer to uh, gauging PPC support, just 5%, and not really approaching double digits in any uh, province in the country, like some of those IVR polls suggested. So some errors there, but not enough really to change our understanding of the race. And because of how close the polls were in the regional uh, breakdowns, it made us pretty confident about who was going to win the most seats. And as it was, of course, the liberals who did, they had a margin in the seat count that was pretty much just as big, even a little bit bigger than it was in 2019. And the popular vote, again, won by the conservatives, but running up those numbers in Saskatchewan and Alberta, didn't give the Conservatives any extra seats. So uh, a good campaign for the polls, and uh, it means we can all move on and not talk about a polling miss. All right, let's get to the polls of the week. Going to get back into the rhythm of the pre-campaign uh, kind of format for the podcast, though I will have some guests here from time to time. But uh, the only poll I wanted to really talk about was the Leger poll that they did after the election. So a little bit of a exit poll, if you will. A couple of things I wanted to highlight. Uh, the Liberals and the New Democrats, people who voted for that party, they were much more likely to say they voted for the party leader. 
which is an interesting one because it was a very leader-focused campaign for both the Liberals and particularly the NDP. Whereas for the Conservatives and the People's Party, people who ended up voting for the Conservatives or the PPC were much more likely to say they were voting for the party itself. So not the leader, but the stances of the party. Also, some other things to uh, glean from the results. A majority of Liberal and Conservative voters say they made up their mind before the campaign started. So their base was pretty much locked in. They weren't really going after that many more votes once the election had kicked off. The bloc, however, 30% of their voters say that they made up their mind after the English language debate. So there has been some discussion about how important that debate was and the question that was posed uh, by Chachi Curl to Yves-François Blanchet, and it does seem to have been pretty significant. 30% said they made up their minds after that debate, and 12% said the debate changed their mind about who they were going to vote for. That was double the amount for the uh, of the Liberals, the Conservatives, and the NDP. So it's certainly the debate itself that had an impact on the bloc support, and while it didn't have them surge to 40 seats dominance of Quebec, it probably made the difference in five, ten ridings maybe, uh, because the bloc was not on track to win 33 seats before the English language debate. A couple other tidbits I thought were really fascinating. There was something in the Leger poll about news consumption, kind of what you'd expect. Liberals, conservatives, you know, their supporters consuming the news, like, you know, a lot of people watching TV newscasts, that kind of thing. Whereas NDP has a lot more younger voters, had more people saying they got their news from social media. But the chunk of voters who voted for the PPC, they were the lowest to say that they got their news from TV newscasts. And they were the most to say that they got it from social media or discussion forums on the internet. When we know that um, vaccines and mask mandates, restrictions was one of the big motivating factors for the People's Party... Perhaps it's not surprising that they were getting most of their news coverage, or a lot of it, disproportionate amount from the internet. And as you know, you can't trust everything on the internet, unless you see it on my site. Now, for the motivations of why people voted for each of the parties, for the liberals, if you look at just the top ones, it was either to avoid a conservative government because they thought Trudeau was the best political leader, or because they thought the liberal party was closest to their values. It's not very different for the Conservatives. People who voted for the Conservatives said their primary reasons were for getting rid of the Liberal government. That was by far the most important issue for them. And then also is because the party represented their values, so not as much the leader, for example. For the NDP, people who voted for the New Democrats, nearly half said it was just because the party represented their values. So it was very much about a value-motivated vote. For the Bloc, it was, again, because of what the party stands for, in this case, defending Quebec's interests. For the People's Party, anti-mask and anti-vaccine mandates, that was the biggest issue for PPC voters. So the idea that vaccines wasn't motivating PPC voters, not borne out by this poll, that also that the party best represented their values. Only 20% of PPC voters said they were primarily motivated by disappointment with the Conservatives or Aaron O'Toole. So I think that aligns actually pretty closely with some of the other polling we have seen where about a third of the PPC vote actually came from 2019 conservative voters. So if we're thinking about maybe a third to one-fifth of the PPC vote was votes that were literally lost by the conservatives that would have otherwise gone to the conservatives, I think that gives us a good measure of where the PPC's vote actually came from. Yes, a lot of it was from the conservatives, but a lot of those people might have already been lost and it was about things like vaccine mandates that was motivating them. It was only the smaller chunk that was explicitly going over to the PPC because of a disappointment with Aaron O'Toole. Speaking of that, 49% of conservative voters say Aaron O'Toole should remain as leader, whereas 22% think he should be 
pushed aside or that he should resign. Compare that to the NDP. 82% of new Democratic voters say Jagmeet Singh should remain as NDP leader, compared to only 8% who say he should resign. All right, questions and answers. I got this one from Patricia Sutherland asking about poll reporting. Given modern day trends, what is the informational value of providing national popular vote only? Should all reporting include regional and urban rural breakdowns in the popular vote? How can reporting be improved? I think that there is a lot of value in understanding where the national race is. And this is goes for when we're talking about the results in addition to uh, poll results. We do need to understand what the overall portrait of this election really is. And the national vote does give us that indication, gives us one indication, and a pretty important one. And for the polls, we kind of need those national numbers to follow the trends. It's the biggest sample, it's the most reliable number, and as I just talked about, the polls are very close nationally. You can rely on those national numbers. But if you're not reporting the regional breakdowns, you're really not really giving people a full understanding of where things are. But the problem with polls is that the smaller samples make it more difficult to report on those regional results, which means that pollsters might need to put a little bit more sample size into their regional breakdowns to make them a little bit more useful, especially when you get results that uh, are not what you'd expect, because those regional numbers are extremely important, and they're extremely important for us understanding what the national numbers mean, both, again, in terms of the polls and the results of the election. So when you're talking about who won what, which party is ahead or behind in the polls, I think you do need to have both the national numbers to give people the baseline and the regional numbers. And if you're a pollster not reporting uh, detailed regional breakdowns, I think you're not helping people understand what is actually going on. M.A. Parson on Twitter, he says, do you have any notable examples of polling misses in past elections, federal or provincial? would be neat to contrast with their good performance in 2021. The biggest misses over the last decade in the polls were all clustered in a period between 2012 and 2013. This was a very difficult time to be someone who writes about polls. The first miss in this period was in the Alberta provincial election in 2012. The polls there gave the Wildrose Party a seven-point lead over the Progressive Conservatives, but in the end, the PCs won by 10 points. This was a 17-point error if we're talking about the margin between the two leading parties. In Quebec, later on that year in 2012, the polls gave the Parti Québécois a seven-point lead over the Quebec Liberals, and in the end, they only won by a single point. So this was an error of about six or seven points in Quebec. It wasn't enough to change who was going to win the election, but it certainly did not look like a better performance than what had happened in Alberta just a few months earlier. And then to cap it all off, there was the British Columbia election in 2013. Now this one, the polls gave the New Democrats in BC a huge lead before the campaign began, and it started to whittle down as the campaign rolled on, but the NDP was still ahead by seven points by the end of the election. In the end, the BC Liberals, the incumbent, they won by four. So this was an error of nearly 12 percentage points in terms of the margin. Those three elections coming right after each other really shook a lot of people's confidence in polls. And I think you still hear about it. You still hear in Alberta that people don't really trust the poll. You hear it in British Columbia that when there's a party ahead in the polls, people still mention that 2013 miss, even if it's now several elections in the past. Uh, that was a tough time. And I remember when I was writing on 308.com, I had a post after the 2013 election. It was almost like a self-reflecting post on, on what the heck I was doing. But if we look at the federal elections 
over the last decade, the polls have actually been pretty good. As I mentioned, the error in 2021 for the margin between the two leading parties, just 1.1 percentage points. In 2019 and in 2015, the error in the margin was only 1.5 points, so that's actually quite good. And then in 2011, between the Conservatives and the NDP, it was three points. That was a bit more of an error and made the difference between uh, Stephen Harper majority and minority. But overall, the, the polls in Canada, the federal polls, have usually been pretty accurate. Anthony Jackson asks, I'm curious, given the minority situation, if any party outside of the Greens would actually risk trying to change leaders given the chance for an election prior to the next fixed date. Now, my gut is telling me that this parliament could actually last pretty long, maybe two years, maybe three. Uh, I'm not seeing a, a big likelihood that the Liberals will pull the plug again. Despite Aaron O'Toole saying the Liberals are planning an election in 18 months, I really don't see that. I have a hard time imagining the Liberals would try this again after nearly being defeated. And the other parties, they have to team up to um, defeat the government. And I'm not sure that they have much of an appetite to do that either. But if we look at the last few times that there has been minority governments, what has happened? So in 2004, there was no change in the leadership. Paul Martin stayed on. He had won that election. Stephen Harper, despite failing to defeat the Liberals remained his leader. Jack Layton was in his first campaign. He stayed. Jules Duceppe was um, several campaigns into his leadership of the Bloc Québécois, and he remained. In 2006, however, Paul Martin had lost that election, and he stepped aside. So there was one leader who stepped aside in 2006. 2008, it was Stéphane Zion. He was the leader who stepped aside uh, when he failed to defeat Stephen Harper. Now, the next election resulted in a majority, but in 2019, you saw that Andrew Scheer was forced out by his party, and Elizabeth May also stepped aside. Now we see Enemy Paul. Will there be another one? We'll have to wait and see. I'm not sure if Aaron O'Toole is out of the woods yet. If we remember what happened with Andrew Scheer, he lost the election in October 2019, but he only resigned the Conservative leadership in December, when people within the party had really made it impossible for him to hang on. So we'll see what happens with Aaron O'Toole. Uh, just because he is still the leader this week, just because he might still be the leader next month, doesn't mean he'll necessarily be the leader taking the Conservative Party into the next election campaign. All right, every week as part of the Every Election Project, I'm taking a look back at past elections in Canada's history. This week, it's the Ontario election held on October 6, 1937, 84 years ago this week. In 1934, Mitch Hepburn, a partier and a bit of a drinker, led the Ontario Liberals to office, ending 11 years of Conservative government. By 1937, Ontario appeared to be getting itself out of the Depression with the economy booming again. But there was labour strife in Ontario and a significant strike in Oshawa that spring. Hepburn sided with General Motors in the strike and it deeply divided his cabinet. Though both sides claimed victory when it was all over, Hepburn felt he had stood his ground against labor. The unrest continued during the summer with more strikes, and Hepburn charged that communists, with some accuracy, had infiltrated some of the labor organizations in the province. There were big concerns over Ontario's future power supply at a time when the federal government under Mackenzie King was negotiating matters related to the St. Lawrence Seaway with U.S. President Roosevelt. Along with Hepburn's handling of the strikers, this was another issue that put Hepburn and King at odds. It culminated in a dramatic break between the two on the eve of the provincial election. Hepburn announced the election date on his birthday, planning to run on his record of a balanced budget and improved social legislation. 
The Conservatives were under William Earl Rowe. He campaigned on the Liberals' mismanagement of Hydro Ontario, but Conservatives were still largely seen as the party that had been defeated in 1934. Rowe also took a softer line on Labour, which went against the mood at the time. Unlike the Conservatives, the Liberals had a ton of money. Much of it was gained through methods, to quote an observer at the time, that would, quote, shame Tammany itself. Liberals had broad media support, with the exception of the Ottawa Journal, and had a patronage system in place that kept money flowing and people in line. Hepburn kept up a steady pace of 50 near-daily meetings, some broadcast over the radio. He traveled the province by car and visited northern Ontario by seaplane. His party sent out flyers to every riding, spelling out how much money had been spent locally, and bought ads in the newspapers attacking Earl Rowe. According to one conservative, quote, Poor Rowe stumbled along, doing his utmost, but affecting nothing. And all the time, day and night, the air was filled with the same stuff, droned out in the same unimpressive way. For tens of thousands of electors whose only acquaintance with Mr. Rowe was a radio acquaintance, these faults were fatal. There were other parties in the field, such as the CCF, but it was not able to really impose itself on this campaign. It was largely fighting with communists for influence among labor groups. When the votes were finally counted, Francophones, Catholics, industrial centers, and the traditional base of southwestern Ontario voted liberal, while the Conservatives won rural ridings primarily in eastern Ontario. Toronto was hotly contested, but in the end, Liberals and their allies, the Liberal Progressives and the United Farmers, won 67 seats. They took 52% of the vote, whereas the Conservatives, while they gained six seats, they still only won 23. They had 40% of the vote. The CCF was shut out. They took 5%. Now, the next few years would be tumultuous ones in Ontario politics, with a deepening alliance between Hepburn and Quebec Premier Maurice Duplessis, both of whom would criticize King's attempts to fight the Second World War. Hepburn would eventually resign the premiership in 1942, after his party was completely divided over his contentious relationship with the federal wing of the party. The Liberals would lose the next election in 1943, but Hepburn would come back for one more unsuccessful run as Liberal leader in 1945. But the 1937 victory was Hepburn's, and the last that the Ontario Liberals would win for 50 years. Though he wasn't happy to see Hepburn return to power, Mackenzie King admitted the Ontario Premier's appeal in his diary. Quote, People believe he is honest, know he is fearless, and regard him as efficient in administration. His manners, evidently as well, catches the man on the street. It is the fellows that count, and he is one of them in language and spirit. And that'll be it for this week's episode of the RIT Podcast. Did you know that you can listen to episodes on my YouTube channel? You can also find past live streams there. And I'll try to put up some other videos in the weeks to come. And of course, thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the RIT.ca. If you haven't already, you can head to the site to subscribe and get access to all the content. I'm going to start releasing a series of postmortems on how each of the parties did in this last federal election. Okay, that's it for today. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening.